tonight. We are just going to look at the first two verses of 1 Timothy chapter 6 on a Christian work ethic. Now, the last study in chapter 5, we saw um, as we were dealing with certain people in the church, older saints, widows, church leaders, especially those in sin and having to be rebuked. Now, in chapter 6, we're going to look at some problem groups. There's the group of slaves, i.e., I say employees. Um, We'll talk about that. False teachers, and then the rich. Um, Those are the next one we're going to look at, and then through verse 10. And, uh, And then we'll have some final thoughts on 1 Timothy 6 after that. But... What we're going to see in this chapter uh, and in this is is that, first of all, God wants to settle hearts, especially those who needed to be settled in their status in life. There were people that were slaves that had become Christians. And what do I do with that? There were other people that were not satisfied in their heart, but they were wanting more, 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 more money, more riches, more security, more wealth. And whatever they did, they could not find any status of life, poor or rich, to satisfy. But not so with the Christian. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And then the joyful heart of storing up treasure in heaven And the only true riches we have are in heaven. Well, in verse 1 here tonight, So let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. Now, it's, it's crazy talking about slavery in 2020 during the BML riots in the streets outside that happened last night. A good friend of mine is John Schaefer, the pastor of Calvary Chapel First Love. His son is Elijah Schaefer, which he's one of the main correspondents with Blaze. And and he was on the news tonight because he got badly beaten up um, last night by the BML group as he was videotaping. But um, it's crazy talking about this. But I I do want to say that when we're talking just about slavery, we're not talking about always the same thing. Okay, so let's first understand the Old Testament slavery under Judaism. Okay, so let's first understand that when they left Egypt... God made them get rid of their idols. They didn't do it, but the idea is they got rid of their idols. They were to leave certain practices of the Egyptian way of life behind them. Really, the way the world was, the whole world was, really was that way. With a lot of things, marriage and slavery and incest and a lot of, a lot of things that God just said cannot exist in my people and you're going to be my people, and I'm going to be your king, and, and your God, and you're going to walk in the way, in a moral, ethical way that I'm setting up that nobody else in the world is doing. However, the Lord tells us 
that he couldn't bend them too fast, too far, or the branch would break, in essence. And so he, he didn't want polygamy. He didn't want divorce. He didn't want slavery. But because he knew that they would not leave those practices, if they, God said, be my people, you got to give up those practices, they just said, later, we're out of here. We're going to go do our own thing. We're going to be our own country. We're not going to be a part of Jews anymore. So God had to say out of concession, you can divorce, but here's the boundaries. You can have more than one wife, but here's the boundaries. You can have slaves, but here's the boundaries. And the boundaries were so stringent that those issues eventually disappeared over time. For example, I'm not going to get into the big teaching on this, but for example, in polygamy, you could have more than one wife. But here's what God required. When you died, guess who got the inheritance? The kids of the wife that was least loved. <laughs> brilliant, isn't it? Isn't it brilliant? So the guy who loved this wife the most and loved these kids of that wife the most got nothing. They didn't get an inheritance. But the community says, hey, this wife here was the least loved. Her kids get everything. So guess what? People just decided they didn't like polygamy so much after all. In slavery, God set boundaries and, and said, you've got to treat these people not good, but great. And if they were a Jewish slave, they were, became that way by the community. A guy might be a drunkard or lazy He's not being a good husband. He's beating his wife or beating his kids. He's, not, he's a gambler, whatever. And he's not able to take care of his family. The elders of the community would say, you're going to be a slave. Basically a prison sentence, in a sense. Not anybody could be a slave owner. It was only the elders of that community. And... Those guys would come, it would be for six years they would have to be a slave. Now, if they had a wife and kids, they also could come, and, and uh, it was a, a different scenario for them. But this guy had complete power over that slave. He, he couldn't kill him without permission from the community, but he could beat him, he could do a lot of things. But he was to disciple him, love him, teach him. What normally happened, and by the way, during the six years, the slave owner had to put away his salary to the side. So after six years, if the guy wanted to leave, he got a six years combined salary. Plus, he was supposed to be given food and seed for the field because he would go back to his property and live. Man, put me under that slavery. <laughs> I don't mind doing that for... So often what would happen is at the end of the sixth year, it was up to the slave now. You can take this pile of money and the horses and the seed and everything to go back to your own farm and take your family and get your life going back again. Or you can go to the front porch of the slave owner and say these words. 
I love him and I am not going to leave here. In essence, the best version of me is when I'm in submission to this man. And I'm afraid if I leave my life under his control, I won't be the same person I am right now. So he would put his ear against the doorpost. They would put a hole in his ear and give him an earring, which meant he would be a lifelong slave, which was an honorable position in the society because they know that he's a lifelong slave, a bond slave, because he's the one who chose it. And the master's like, ah, I already got too many. I don't need you to stay. Go, go here. I'll double your salary. Get out of here. But it wasn't up to the, the master. It was up to the slave, whether he stayed or went. So it wasn't an oppressive slavery like we saw in our country or even in Rome. Now let's talk a little bit about the Roman slavery. Understand that in the Roman society, there was only one citizenship, and that was a Roman citizenship, okay? So you either were a Roman citizen or you had no citizenship. And in essence, you are nothing. To have any kind of status in the Roman society, if you weren't a Roman, they didn't really have employees like we understand them now. People were slaves. And they estimate that the Roman society was about 120 million people at the time that Paul's writing. This is historians taking a, a guess at it. And about 60 million slaves, according to the writings. So about half of everybody was a slave. And so when we say slave, to them it was sort of like, you're not a Roman, in essence. And so people became slaves for almost any reason. If you were a prisoner of war, you became a slave. If you were a criminal, you could be sentenced to slavery. Um, you could be sold into slavery because you owed money and you couldn't pay your debts. You became a slave um, if you were kidnapped. Slavery. Um, if your parents were slaves, you would be born into a slavery and you would be a slave from birth. Um, and so there is a lot of ways that you could end up with the status of a slave. However, understand that a lot of slaves in the Roman Empire did not have it so bad. They actually had it quite good. Many of them would attain degrees of status, treated very kindly by their masters, respectable and important skilled jobs, medical doctors, lawyers, tutors, teachers, professors, scholars, um, estate managers, entertainers, musicians, librarians, personal secretaries, accountants. A slave could be a very close friend. Eventually, he could buy himself out of slavery. He got paid so good. 
Or often uh, on, on, in the will, when the person died, he would give his lifelong slaves their freedom. However, there was definite seasons in the Roman Empire. Some of them were shortly after Paul had died that they were ex- treated extremely cruel. Nero, I won't even talk about how he treated slaves, but um, many of them were condemned to hard later, beaten, chained, branded on their forehead a runaway, crucified, even killed, um, by or punished by their owner to, uh, with a death sentence. The Greek word slave here, zugon, actually speaks one who is under the yoke. A word which meant bondage, enslaved, weighed down, very heavy weight. So I'm going to suggest here that Paul understood how oppressive the weight of slavery was. One Roman writer said this, Old slaves should be thrown into the dump. When a slave is ill or too, do not feed him anything. He is not worth your money. Take six slaves and throw them away because they're nothing but an insufficient tool. So the question is obviously going to be asked, why did not Paul or God in the New Testament condemn slavery? Try to stop it. And, and, and a very simple answer is this, is Christianity wasn't very big at the time of Paul. There were very few Christians in the world. It wasn't a big group of people until hundreds of years later, you know, by the year 300 AD, now the amount of Christians in the Roman society was substantial. But even if that were the case where the Lord says, everybody get your sword and fight against the oppression of slavery, Rome would have turned on the slave revolt and it would have been a catastrophic and a brutal amount of slaves who would have died. So what was God's plan to stop slavery? It wasn't to go to war with the slave owners. It was to use the Christian principles to end slavery. Three basic attitudes, three basic understandings that God gave to the slave and those who were slave owners. The first was by affecting the slave owners themselves. He was to treat slaves fairly. The Bible tells them they were to do this. Treat them like employees rather than someone that they were owned. And even compensate them fairly, paying them. In Colossians 4.1, he says, Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So God gives a warning and says, hey, (laughs) I'm going to treat you very possibly the way you're treating your servants. You're my servant. How do you want me to treat you? And especially talking about reward or lack of reward for eternity in heaven. So take care of your slaves the way I'm taking care of you. Because Bible, New Testament definitely teaches all of us 
that we are all go to the front porch of God's house and put our ear on the doorpost and say, God, forever, I want to be a, your bond slave because when I'm submitted under your authority is the best version of me. When I'm a submitted doing your will, that's the best human version that I'll ever be on this earth when I'm in full submission to you, God. So Paul would say, I'm a bond slave of Christ. It was this Jewish understanding that he says is a picture of how Christ was and it's a picture of how all Christians are to be. So now I may be a slave owner, he says, but you are yourself a slave under Christ. And therefore Christ, in essence, figuratively so, is your slave master And how does he treat you with kindness and love and fairness and blessings? Then this should be how you are a master as well. Secondly, by affecting the slaves, by giving them a way of seeing themselves in a dignity or a dignified way, even though they were slaves. In Galatians 3.28 He said, neither is there Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So especially in the church, we're all equal. James talks about this, that in the church, you shouldn't have rich people sitting here in these more comfortable chairs and the poor people in the back standing against the the back wall and they can hear what they can hear. He said, in the church, That right there will bring judgment of God upon you if you treat the rich differently than the poor. Because in the church, we are not to recognize the status that you have in the world. In the world, you're rich. And here, you're just a simple Christian. In the world, you're a famous person or a big politician or you're a wealthy businessman that has a lot of power. But when you come into the church, we are all just equal children as we worship, as we pray, as we talk amongst each other, we're all equals. Can you imagine that mindset in any society, especially a society like the Roman society, when people begin to get that, how powerful that was? And and, and I understand it's that wonderful thought right there that Satan says, oh, yes, let me give you a a more, a better way of doing that, communism. (laughs) That's communism from Satan's point of view of how to get that without God. I'm going to get you this wonderful equal treatment among people, but without God. Here's what it looks like, communism. But when you look at it, how do we end up becoming servants of one another? It's only in the understanding of the nature of God, especially through the example of Jesus, that we have this heart one towards another. And, um, and then the third thing in the New Testament teaching It began undoing, eventually destroying slavery because servants and owners were now brothers in Christ. You say, well, why doesn't the Bible make clear its position on slavery? It wrote an entire book of the Bible on the subject. 
It's only one page, but it's called Philemon. But it's one of the New Testament books, all on this issue of slavery. And in Philemon, verse 15 and 16, it says this, For perhaps he, Onesimus, who was a runaway slave, he was living in rebellion. He ended up crossing paths with Apostle Paul. They probably recognized each other from Philus's house, Philemon's house. Paul led this guy to the Lord and then discipled him. And the guy had a call in his life to become a pastor. And Paul said, before you can join me in ministry, you got to go back and get things right with your slave master. Because at this point, legally, you're not free. And under God's mind of authority, structure of authority, you have not been released from that authority yet. You got to go back and humble yourself. So with that in mind, Philemon 15 and 16, perhaps, perhaps he, Onesimus, depart, departed for a while for this purpose that you might receive him forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Imagine a world where a master and a slave not only attend the same church, listen to the same sermon, but imagine a world where the slave serves as the pastor and the master is a congregant. Do you see how the Lord's destroying slavery by turning everything upside down in the status, in the caste system? The fourth thing is to help each Christian slave to live as a free man in the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 7, 21 to 23, were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. For he who calls you in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freeman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Now, this is interesting. Paul says, if you cannot be a slave of a man, then do it. If the guy gives you an option saying, hey, if you want, you don't have to be a slave anymore. Don't be a slave anymore. You could get some money and buy yourself out of slavery. And you're wondering, do I spend the money for that or not? Spend the money for that. Get out of slavery. But understand, you're still a slave. Because everybody who's not a slave of man is still a slave of Christ. So all of us are slaves in one way or another. And when you really think about it, if you're not a slave of Christ, you're a slave of your sin. Do I get an amen for that? I mean, talking about a cruel master, especially if you have been in the sin of, of gambling and you're addicted to that till it literally destroys everything and you're getting beat up in the alley because you own some bookie, or the slave of drugs, or alcohol. There's a lot of things that literally can, can surprisingly addict a person and they don't see it until it's literally too late. And then you think, oh, I can quit drinking. Oh, I can quit gambling. I can quit and then 
they, they think over the next couple of years they can quit whenever they want, but they can't, and it's just causing more and more and more destruction. There's a lot of things we can put ourselves into slavery, but then, of course, the devil's working over time to get you into his slavery too, right? With an addiction to pornography or to sex or uh, in some other thing that, that he can just keep you in bondage by guilt because you're not even a Christian. You don't even believe in Christianity. You still are made in God's image. You have a conscience and you feel guilty. And the weight of guilt itself will aid you will destroy you. Just, just the, 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 the sense of shame from your sin that you're addicted to or that you're struggling with or you don't want anybody to know that you're doing. Just the secret shame of it is enough to keep you in slavery, isn't it? So when you think about it, guys, everybody's going to serve somebody, as Bob Dylan said. I told him that and he put it in a song got rich. I was only three years old at the time, but I was very, very profound. And uh, you're going to serve somebody. It's either going to be the devil or the Lord or your flesh. You're going to serve somebody. But serving Jesus, ah, that is where there's true freedom. But if you're a Christian and you're not under his yoke, what's the yoke? The yoke was a big giant block of wood you put on an oxen. And Jesus says, come unto me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Oh, good, what do I do? Take this yoke upon you. And he said, my yoke. Yokes were made specifically for each oxen, according to their back bone structure and their muscles. It was like a glove. And the Lord says, take my yoke on you. And don't change your, don't change your back muscles. Let them change into this mold of me and as you carry that yoke you'll find a rest for your souls because my burden is easy and light and in that burden of carrying Christ's yoke we'll find a rest for our souls so put yourself under the yoke of being a slave of Christ what's that mean he's Lord he's master Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? Don't, don't call me Lord, just do what I say, and you'll prove that I'm your Lord by what you do. But yet you'll outwardly say, Lord, 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 but then you don't do what I say, so you're making everybody think that I'm your Lord and Master when that, that's obviously not the case. But it's interesting that even in that teaching, Jesus says it's not him, the master, putting you under him as slave. It's you coming under him and saying, be my master. Do you see the difference? So that's why he says right there in verse, in verse 22, likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. But then you were bought at a price. Don't be a slave of any man. Just a quick note. I, I've had, especially living in San Diego, a military town. People say, hey, I'm thinking of going to the military. What do you think? And, and I, I tell them each time, you, you are willingly putting yourself in servanthood unto the government. You can't go when you want to go and 
stop when you want to stop, move where you want to move, and do what you want to do. They have control over you until your contract is up. Can God, can God call a man to put himself under a yoke of slavery to the government or to something like that for a season? Yes, they can, but you need to be called to it. So you don't just go into the military because you don't have anything better to do as a Christian. It's like you're called. You're called into the military. Then that's your calling. Then join and sign up for four years or whatever. But you, you understand that for that next four years, if God says, hey, go be a missionary and wherever, you can't just show up one day going, hey, I'm quitting being a, I'm quitting the military. Uh, just let you guys know. And they're like, hey, you got two more years on your contract. What are you talking about? Yeah, well, you know, but I, this missionary gig came up and I, I, I think I'm supposed to be a missionary, so I'm going to go do that. instead. They're, they're, yeah, if you don't show up on Monday morning, we're putting you in jail. You, you're not a freeman. So I, I can say there's times when God has called people to put themselves under the yoke of another, but it needs to be a calling. Just a little side point there. So the attitude of a slave towards being or towards believing a believing master. What do you say in verse one there? Count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. So in this Roman society, everyone, employees or slaves, would have been treated as a lesser class citizen than they are just to shut up and take it. Thus, Christian owners need to change how they're treating their fellow man, even if they're a slave or an employee, and stop mistreating them and treating them with respect and as an equal. Well, the knee-jerk reaction to that is, hey, you're not treating me like a slave, and I don't have to treat you like a master, typically in this Roman citizenship. So we're more brothers now. So I'm going to show up 15 minutes late and you tell me to go dig that hole. And I'm like, hey, I'm tired of digging today. You go dig that hole. And all of a sudden, because he's treating you the way God has commanded him to treat you, he's getting less honor. And Paul says, hey, once these masters start obeying God and treating you as an equal, as a fellow man, you need to still continue to be in respect and submission to that master because you're honoring God as well. Paul in Ephesians explains it in much more detail in verse 5 through 9. Bondservants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ. Wow. Treat them as you would Christ. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will doing services to the Lord and not to men knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he's a slave or free. And you masters do the same thing to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. So here's the way it would look. You, you come into this home or this compound or this business 
And before, when this guy was a non-Christian, he, all his managers had whips. And everybody, his servants, were being screamed at and yelled at and, and slapped and spit on and kicked. And, and, and everybody's getting the thing done and the guy's getting rich and prosperous. And now the guy's a Christian. So now you walk into that factory, into that home, that compound, whatever it is, and all the masters and all the, they're, they're talking lovingly and kindly. And yet these servants are working harder than ever with great attitudes. Nobody's having to yell at them and scream at them and, and threaten them. Everybody's on time. Everybody's doing their work. Everybody's working hard. All these servants are working as unto the Lord. And this guy's treating all these guys as equals. And imagine non-Christians watch, watching this going, man, they're all going to run away from you. They're all going to not fear you. And so they're going to not do the work. They're going to all know that you're not going to do any harm to them. So they're just going to run away and you're going to have no servants at all. But the opposite happens. They're all working as unto the Lord. He's running his business as it's God's business. He's got this calling to serve everybody under him. These servants have a calling to serve God and to submit to everybody in authority under them or above them. And you got this beautiful thing happening. And what, they're going to come in and, and marvel at this going, how can such a thing be? But if they went home and just tried to work that out <laughs> on their own, hey, everybody, uh, you know, nobody's, no whips are going to be carried anymore. Nobody's going to be yelling at you. And I'm going to start being nicer to you. And you guys... Work harder. It probably wouldn't work, would it? Because the whole key to this recipe is that they're all doing it unto God to give him glory. It's something that happened in the heart by the work of the Spirit. Now, it's hard for us in the United States to hear this with our history of slavery most part, the, the slavery in the United States was a despicable, despicable thing. It wasn't as in the Roman Empire that was purely economic. You could be any color and be a Roman citizen. You could be any color and be a slave. But in the United States, slavery was purely on race. If you were dark-skinned, you were, even if you weren't a slave for some reason, you would be treated like one still, right? If you had a black guy that wasn't a slave, how would he be treated? <laughs> even if he was a freeman, he would still be treated as if he were a slave, wouldn't it? There was not like, oh, yeah, I'm going to treat you normally, oh, because you're a free man, I'll treat you like every person I know. No, it was purely a race thing. And therefore, it goes against so many principles of God as you study the Old Testament. It was a race, color. It was cruel. It was about greed. It was immoral, unethical. And the Bible and God were blasphemed as men tried to Christianize this horrific slavery. Isn't that true? 
They tried to make the Bible seem that what they were doing was correct as they took out selective verses and, and tried to somehow say that God is the one ordaining this. But now today, in 2020, especially in the year of BLM, it, it, it just seems so weird that you got this white guy up here, this pastor, talking about slavery and in explaining it is saying, don't take it so seriously. Let's just sort of scrub the slavery thing and just call it employees and employers. And and. Because you got to understand, when Paul was writing, they didn't have such a thing as we have in a middle-class capitalistic society. So the Bible doesn't talk about employers, employers. This is all they had at the, in this time, in this citizenship, with slaves and slave masters. So yes, it, it is a direct parallel. It really is equal. But yet, it, 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 because of the stigma of our past slavery... You know, it, it stems back, you know, it ended in 1865 with the Civil War where, you know, hundreds of thousands of men died over this issue. The, the states were wanting to split up into separate countries and they didn't allow it. A lot of issues were resolved in that. And... Um, and so that was our forefathers. For some of you, it's not your forefathers. I mean, there's people in our church that they're first generation. They just came from Brazil. They, 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 their forefathers had nothing to do with America's slavery, but they're white. <laughs> and so in the BLM agenda, everybody that's white or white-ish were guilty by association. White men, over 150 years ago, enslaved the black man. So far as we're concerned, it's exactly what's in your heart today. And you're equally as equal because your great-great-grandparents were a part of that. And you're going, I just came from Brazil like 10 years ago. Hear my accent? (laughs) You know, I just... I, I just came here from Sweden. I, I don't, we, we had nothing to do with slavery. What are you talking about? It, it wouldn't matter, would it? Because they're, they're just basically saying that, that everybody should associate themselves with the guilt of something that happened 160 years ago. So what happened after a man in America was no longer a slave? Well, originally... It was passed as law by Congress and voted in by the president after Lincoln that every black family would get 40 acres and a mule. But quickly, Congress changed and it became a Democratic run and they erased that. So they didn't get their 40 acres. And so now I'm not a slave, but I don't have land. I don't have a job. In essence, for the next 150 years, the black guy is trying to figure out how to get ahead in this society. And today, the black community, especially the poor black community, is saying, 
we are here in this difficult, poor areas of all over the United States in an oppressed situation, trying to get out of our ghetto and finding it very hard to do because it's a domino that started in slavery and even after slavery. And, we, and for some black people, they got educated, they got out, they became millionaires through a number of ways. And so there are tens of thousands of very successful black people. Black people in our country is about 14%. If you use the ratio of black people that are millionaires and the, with that 14%, per capita, they're the richest people per capita by the percent of any other nationality, any other color. So they have found a niche, a lot of them through sports or through entertainment or uh, a lot of them just grinding it out in college, becoming doctors and lawyers and whatever else, like, like everybody else. But they are saying, appreciate it that for me to be in Harlem or be in a ghetto and, and get, get through high school without getting killed or in a gang and then getting to college and, and getting out of college and getting a job as a lawyer or a doctor or whatever is much, much harder than it would have been for a white guy the same year graduating from high school or the same way going through it. And, and we appreciate that by saying it's 100% true. It's true. Okay. And so in essence, there is an honest group of people saying, would you just acknowledge the fact that a lot of us are oppressed, not because we're a bunch of lazy, good-for-nothing, dishonest, evil black people, because that's the way black people are, and say it stems back to when we were in slavery and have never really gotten a chance to, to get out of this oppressed mode. And I can do that. I say, absolutely, it's true. Now, what do we do to rectify that? I, I just do not know. You know, with the Japanese people, I mean, it was a little too little, a little too late. I mean, virtually most of those people that had been in the Japanese concentration camps, just simply because they were Americans living here in America and their nationality was Japanese, they got a little bit of money. I don't remember what it was, like $37,000 or whatever under, I think it was Nixon or something, wasn't it? Do you guys remember that at all? It, it wasn't very much. And most of those people had already died. But, um, you know, some kind of reparations, you know, is that necessary? I don't know. The, uh, black, my black friends that I have and the pastors that I have, they are offended at that idea. They're just like, I'm not some poor black guy that needs your handout. <laughs> and they're not wealthy people. They could definitely use the money, but they're in no way wanting, they, it, would de, it would be demoralizing to them to try to give them a check because they're black and they don't know them personally, but probably one of the great, great, great grandfathers was a slave. Um, it's very offensive to them. But others, and so it just, this BLM movement is a demonic organization, the actual nonprofit organization. It really is not about black people. It's just the disguise they're coming in 
to try to force everybody out of guilt to let them have their way. And what they're going to create is a restructuring of the country. They actually do not want the nuclear family as a mom, a dad, and a kid. They don't want that. They want it to be a village of LGBTQ society and everybody raises the kids and everybody, it's like a commune type of thing. And, and the way they see this is a progressive movement, which is socialism, which both of those words are just another way of saying communism. So they're trying to guilt everybody into saying, oh, if you're against BLM, BLM then you're unwilling to recognize the, the oppression of the black man and, and the reason peop, black people are having still a hard time today is because of the white people oppressing the black. You're unwilling to identify that. And we're saying, no, we're, we're very much willing to identify that. But we're not gonna buy in and let you shame us in by guilt into the BLM agenda, which is not any of that to do with the black man. It's you're trying to take over the country. Will they be successful? I don't know. It, it, it seems like eventually they might be. Dinesh D'Souza, he basically said that the liberals, the progressive liberals, they are so self-righteous that they believe their view of the world is so righteously right that they come down and say, the ends justify the means. So if you can steal and lie and cheat and do any wicked thing, it's okay because your means are be justified by getting to this righteous end. So they're going to be willing to be brutal and beat you and burn down your building and threaten you and, you know, do whatever it is to bully you into submission. And the conservative right is never going to be that mean. We're never going to say, come on, man, we're going to bring fire with fire. That's just not going to happen. We're not willing to lie and cheat and still and be brutal to bring about what we believe is the, the correct end. So when you look at those two formulas, eventually they're going to they're gonna win simply by meanness. But don't let your hearts be troubled. God's plans for us are good and not evil to give us a hope and a future, right? In this world, we're going to have tribulations, but we're going we're gonna to win at the end. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in Jesus. He has a mansion waiting for us. But how is it going to end in the United States? I don't know. I do know, prophetically, we're eventually not important. The Middle East is important. Europe is important. Africa is important. All those are mentioned in the prophecies of the last days in the coming of the Antichrist and in the tribulation period and setting up. America is a non-issue, like Canada is a non-issue, like Mexico is a non-issue, like um, most of the world, Ireland and whatever is non-issues. It's just, you're, you exist, but you're, you're not on the stage in this part of the act. So at some point, we are clearly on the world stage, have been for over 100 years. At some point, we're no longer on the world stage. Somehow we're minimized. How does that look? I don't know. 
But I know eventually we're not a major force in the world, according to prophecy. So don't let your hearts be troubled when we start becoming minimalized and less important. Our job is to be a witness, a light to those around us in the world. But for sure, we can say that the principles that God wanted a slave to have towards a slave master and a slave master towards a slave is the same attitudes that God wants us to have from employers to employees and vice versa. So Francis Folks writes, the principles of the whole section apply to employees and employers in every age, whether in the home, in business, or in the state. So the passage here answers the question, how do we maintain a good biblical work ethic in a world that rejects biblical concepts of work? The answer is, as the Bible instructs a slave towards his master, so you need to have that same work ethic towards your employer. Well, in verse 2, And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because they are who are benefited, are believers and beloved, teach and exhort these things. So guys, respect your employers, inspect your slave owners when they're trying to start this service. Let it happen and don't resist it. Don't make this formula go all bad because you're, you're taking your freedom and disrespecting the person who's trying to treat you as an equal. Paul argues that the Christian slave does not have taken advantage of the Christian master, but rather greater service, better service, can take place since the master will benefit from such service since both are believers, both are dear to God. We should never expect special treatment because of our bosses or our supervisors, our fellow Christian friends of ours. Instead, you should motive, it should motivate us to work even harder because we, we can then be a blessing to one another. So in conclusion, Paul reminds slaves that we are not to rebel or to run away or to act insolent or do as little work as we can. Paul instructs us that we are to stay focused on honoring God, opportunities to witness, bring glory to the gospel. If slaves are to serve their masters honestly, in obedience, integrity, much more, we should be willing to serve our employers with honesty, obedience, and integrity. Why? What's Paul's reasoning? So that masters would learn to respect the name of God and the word of God. When I was in carpentry, I, a guy, a good friend of mine, a good Christian friend of mine brought me into carpentry as a mainframer. And every Friday, he would say, come on, we need to you know, go over and we would get our bags and empty all our 16 uh, penny nails and our eight penny nails out and put them in the boxes and any other thing we had from that job we'd put into, give back to the boss. And I did not understand it until several weeks into it when their other guys were working with this. And on Fridays, they would go over and they would start loading up like five times more than ever put in their bag of 16 penny nails and eight penny nails from the boss because they had a part-time job on the weekend and they were basically stealing the nails for their part-time job. 
But what I had been doing with my friend teaching me, I was, we were doing the opposite, saying not even one penny, not even one nail shall we take with us that we didn't purchase. And our boss was a non-Christian. So what a great testimony being a Christian honest worker is to a non-Christian employer and also to all the other employees who are watching So Paul instructs us to help understand the work calls for obedience in the Lord. We do not work hard simply because the boss is looking or we have just come up with a a performance review. Colossians 3.2, servants obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. We should be honorable, legal, biblical, ethical before God. In our culture and society, we sometimes separate the sacred from the secular, but there's no such division in God's universe. All work that honors and glorifies God fulfills the need that can be done to glorify God. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink, whether you do this or do that, in all things, give glory to God. So in our work life, It's not secular job, and then I go to church and I have a sacred job. No, all our jobs are sacred if we do them as unto the Lord. So work provides an opportunity to witness. Work provides a way for us to speak about who we are and what we care about. Does your work and how you do it show your love, your commitment, your obedience to Christ? Matthew 5.16 Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Amen. Lord, thank you again for your word tonight and just ask you to just, as we go line upon line, precept upon precept, we know that you're speaking into our lives things, maybe not for right now or not even for the past week, but for the week to come and we don't even know about it. But just we want to know you, your nature, your heart, your mind. And it does change us how we are to view this world around us. As we take time just to sing a couple of songs, you might just want to say, you know, I just want to come and just worship the Lord. I want to come and just as I take the bread and the juice to say, Lord, I want to honor you. And I ask as I take this bread that you would break yokes in my life. Maybe there's some addictions that you're a slave to. Maybe there's things that are causing you to be in bondage. Be it unto you according to your faith. The woman that had the hemorrhage, she purpose and art. If I touch the hem of his garment, I'll be made well. In 12 years, she had that issue of blood. She was made well. So you can take by faith that bread tonight at the Lord's table and let him touch you and you touch him and to break that yoke and to believe God. Be it unto you according to your faith and then to just say, Lord, by your blood, cleanse me to be a man of God, a woman of God after your own heart to do all your will.